I want to welcome you into the Sunday Preaching Podcast of the Point Church, located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. What Pastor John said about this week, we had kids crawling all over the place here. And uh, actually on both campuses, uh, somewhere probably between 240 and 250 in Vacation Bible School. And so we enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, the music and just everything was done with excellence. And so uh, we appreciate all of our workers, Miss Kayla who led, Miss Jana who did a lot with that. And uh, we appreciate the investment in our kids. And I want to ask you to go ahead and begin praying now uh, for student camp. A week from tomorrow, our middle school and high schoolers will be going to camp. And so uh, begin praying about that, that the Lord uh, would, of course, give us safety of travel as we go, and then uh, that the Lord would do a great thing in the lives of our students. I just want you to know how much I enjoy uh, preaching the Bible to you every week. And I'm enjoying this series in 1 Corinthians. You know, it's uh, interesting as we turn the pages and go verse by verse, uh, Paul sure does cover a lot of different subjects, doesn't he? I mean, we've covered a lot of things just in the first five chapters. We started out talking about unity, the importance of unity in the church, and we started a couple Sundays ago talking about purity in the church. Last week, we focused in on the importance of keeping pure relationships with one another. It should be your desire to be right with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. How many of you have learned, though, that sometimes things happen? Things happen. And you have to be willing to work through those things. That's why forgiveness is so important. You know, sometimes you have an offense, and sometimes those things seem really small. Maybe someone says something to you, and, and uh, in the moment, uh, you say to them, well, that offended me, and they say, oh, I'm so sorry, I, I shouldn't have said that, or maybe in our heart we feel convicted, we know we shouldn't have said that, and so we ask for forgiveness. And then there's kind of a ladder, right? There's different rungs of the ladder to where things become bigger and bigger and bigger uh, in relation to the size of the offense. Imagine, if you would, you're in church, you're in the a body of Christ, and uh, you have somebody in the church that gets something from you. It's a possession of some kind. I don't know, it might be a, 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 a lawnmower or a fishing rod or a, a, some type of weapon or something. Maybe you just uh, you get something from someone or, or you allow someone to have a possession of yours and you say to them, or, or you know, when are you going to pay me? And they say, well, I don't have the money right now, but uh, hopefully I'll get my tax return, all right? And then I'll, I'll pay you then when that money comes in. And then a month later, there's crickets. And then a month later, there's crickets. Three months later, you nor the sheriff department can find them. Where are they? So how do you deal with that? Or, or how about this? Maybe you're involved in a local church, and there's someone in the church that they're, uh, they work at the bank to which you bank. And then you start noticing something is off here, and you go back and look, and you begin to do some research, and you find out that 
that that person has been skimming money out of your bank account over a period of time. And you wonder, how, how do I handle this? What is, the, what is the process? What should I do? You know, the reality is, is that we place ourselves under the Lordship of Christ and we place ourselves in the authority, if you will, of the local church. In this section in 1 Corinthians, Paul is dealing with church discipline. The Baptist historian John L. Dagg said that when discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. Let me say it again. When discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. We sang just a few minutes ago, He is Lord. He is Lord of all. Do you, do you believe that today? I need to remind you that when you sang those words, the word Lord there means He is in authority. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is ruling and reigning today. He is in complete authority. So when you're a Christian, you place yourself under the lordship of Christ. You place yourself under the authority of God's word, and you place yourself under the authority of the local church. Now, that word authority today really can have two extremes. One, there's the abuse of authority. Some people get in charge or in control and they don't know what to do with it or they use their position to abuse. They abuse their authority. On the other extreme, we have a disdain for authority. We're living in a culture today where there is disrespect for authority. You don't believe me? Talk to some of the school teachers in our church. They'll tell you all about it. There's this disrespect or this disdain for authority. So, so here, you and I are, we're Christians living in a culture with really two extremes when it comes to authority. Does it not make sense to you that no matter what's going on in the world and the culture around us, that you and I need to always keep ourselves tuned up to the authority of Christ and the authority of Scripture? Because that's who we live under today. In this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there are some things going on in the church that are up the rungs of the, the ladder that I mentioned a minute ago. As a matter of fact, there are lawsuits and there are civil disputes going on in the church. This was not uncommon in the city of Corinth. As a matter of fact, there was a playwriter, uh, Aristophanes, who would write plays, and of course, you know how it is, you try to interject some humor and so forth in those plays. In at least one of them, he has one of the actors or players who is looking at a map, and he says, I can't, I can't find Greece on this map. One of the other actors comes over and points to the map and says, there's Greece. And he looks down and he says, I'm not sure that's Greece because I don't see enough lawsuits on here. The city of Corinth became a very litigious place. Uh, you just sue someone at the drop of a hat. Does that sound familiar? You and I live in a very litigious society today. We sue over land or uh, disagreements. We sue over libel. As a matter of fact, when you go uh, and get a cup of coffee these days, it says on the side of it, caution hot. Now, who buys a cup of coffee 
and doesn't know that it's hot. I got one laugh out of that. Everybody awake today? Everybody good? You buy a cup of coffee, unless you're buying iced coffee, you know that it's going to be warm, right? Well, years ago, there was someone all over the news that had gotten a cup of coffee at McDonald's and had spilled that cup of coffee in their lap. They got a lawyer and they sued and they won. Thus, we have coffee is hot, like water is wet, right? Coffee is hot. Be careful. You know, today there are people that sue for $1 just so they can prove to be right or to win a judgment in a disagreement. Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's exactly what Paul is dealing with as the Christian church is in this litigious culture. How are Christians supposed to treat one another in matters of disputes? Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kind of walk through verses 1 through 8 with you and stop here there and make a little point or two, and then I'll come back and summarize uh, the eight verses for you. Hear the word of the Lord. When one of you has a grievance against another, that word grievance there is a matter or a thing. Uh, it, it elevates itself to the level of a lawsuit. When you have a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, I want you to know this. The sentence structure of verse number one in the Greek, the first word of that verse is actually the word dare, okay? It doesn't fit for us in our English language, but, but Paul is really saying right off the bat, how dare you? How dare you take a matter that you have with a brother in Christ and you go to the Roman courts, remember this is a Roman colony, and so the Romans had a very robust legal system uh, that, of course, they were very proud of, like they were proud of everything else. And he said, how dare you? You have a dispute, and you go to the legal system in front of unrighteous people to settle this dispute. Now, the word unrighteous there is a very key word uh, as we walk through this text. The word there means unjust, okay? Uh, on down in just a minute, verse number six, he's going to use the word unbeliever. So he's saying, you're a Christian, you've got a matter or dispute, and you're going to the unrighteous, the unsaved, the unbeliever in order to settle that dispute. Verse number two, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Isn't that an interesting statement? I don't know about you. I've got a simple mind. I'm from Alabama. I read chapter 5. The end of chapter 5, it says, don't worry about judging the world. You, judgment needs to go on in the church. God's the judge. God will judge the outsiders. And then I go two or three verses later, and it says, hey, we're going to judge the world. So there's this eschatological, eschatology, the end times. There's a big picture here. Remember, this life is just like a vapor off the stove. It comes up and it goes away. This life is passing. What really matters is eternity. You and I as Christians have to live in light of eternity. We can't live for ourselves in the moment. We've got to remember that there is an eternity. And there's coming a time, Paul says, where you and I as Christians are going to be a part of judging the world. 
Now, we don't have all the details of that. We don't know every little uh, jot and tittle about how that's going to happen. Could depend on how you view the end times, the judgment, a seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment, the millennial reign of Christ, when Christ comes to this earth and seated on the throne, and we rule and reign with him, but we are going to judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, if we're going to be a part of that process, are you now, right now in this moment, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Hear me today, Christian. There are things in this life, day by day and week by week, that we get all twisted up around the axle about that will not matter in eternity. When you become obsessed with the things of this world, you are losing your view of the big picture. You're losing your view of eternity. Paul says if you're going to be a part of God's greater judgment of the world, why can you not slow down for just a minute and realize that you are completely capable of making decisions about trivial cases? I know sometimes things happen in our lives that are important to us, and we get fixed on those things. Maybe the Holy Spirit would say to us, you need to dial it back a little bit, and you need to be reminded that's trivial in light of the big picture. Keep reading with me. Verse 3, do you not know? Now, that word there is not gnosis for knowledge, but rather it's the word for discernment. Do you not discern? Do you not know that you're going to judge angels? Isn't that an interesting statement? Matthew 13, Matthew 16, Matthew 25 says, there are good angels that are going to come with the Son of Man in all of his glory, and they with Christ and with us are going to judge the world. Anybody read the book of Genesis before? We have what we know as fallen angels who join with Lucifer. They rebelled against a holy and a righteous God. So where are they and what's going to happen to them. Paul says, hey, because you're in Christ, you're with him, you're under his authority, you're with his authority, you're going to be a part of judging angels. Jude in verse number six, look on the screen, reminds us of what's going to happen to these angels. I remind you of the angels who did not stay within their own limits of authority that God gave them, but they left the place where they belong. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, and they are waiting for the great day of judgment. You see the connection there? Paul is saying you're going to be a part of that as a child of God. So if you're a part of this great judgment of the world and of angels, how much more, look back at verse number three, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? That word pertaining there is ordinary things. Verse four, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Very important. When you become a Christian, you enter into the body of Christ. You enter into the church. Look at me. I think sometimes people call themselves a Christian, and they do not, they do not connect this. I know I'm speaking to a room right now of really spiritual people who connect this, right? 
wave at me, say amen right there. When you become a Christian, you become a part of the church. You place yourself. You now have a standing in the church. You enter into. You have a relationship with Christ, a relationship with your brothers and sisters. You place yourself into the body. There are people out there in a lost world, they have no standing in the church. So there's a sense in which Paul is saying, why do we care what they think? Or why do we go to them and ask their advice on settling a matter that relates to the spiritual health, unity, and purity of the church? Look at verse number five. I say this to your shame. Does anybody remember back in chapter four where Paul says, look, now I'm being like a father to you and I'm challenging you here. I'm bringing correction. I'm not trying to shame you. My goal is not to shame you. It's to correct your behavior. Well, that's out the window here in verse number five. Paul says, shame on you. How dare you? Shame on you. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. You ought to circle unrighteous in verse number one, unbelievers in verse number six, and then in verse number nine, again, the word unrighteous, and I'll unpack that in just a minute. You're taking a matter, and you're going to the civil public Roman law, and you're standing in front of unbelievers who do not have a biblical worldview. They do not have the Spirit of God inside of them. And you're asking them to settle matters of disagreements. Verse number seven, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Here's what he's saying. You may go to the court of law and win but I'm telling you, nobody wins. When two, two Christians are fighting and fussing with one another, there is no winner. You've already lost. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That word there means stolen from. Why not just be stolen from? Verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So let me give you a summary statement of verses one through eight. Here it is. You ready? If you want justice, don't go to the unjust. If you want real justice, don't go to the unjust. Our most important observer is God Almighty. He is our creator. He is holy. He is righteous. He is just. There's a sense in which right now in this moment that I should not be focused on what you think about this sermon or how you feel about this sermon. I should be focused on pleasing my Father, a holy and a righteous God. I want to please Him, which starts with me mounting this desk with my heart clean and pure before the Lord. And to say, Lord, I'm your servant. I'm here to deliver your word. I mean, right now, I want to please my Father. 
I don't want you to leave today and say, man, I hate the sermon. That was terrible. But at the end of the day, I'm here to please him. I mean, when I place myself as a Christian in the body of Christ, being a part with Christ, it means that Christ rules and reigns over me. My heavenly Father rules and reigns over me. And you and I today feel that tension, don't we? The tension is with the system of the world over what is right and what is wrong. I will not bore you with illustrations of what we see even today in our culture, in our court systems all over our country, and I'm sure all over the world where people are doing wrong. They are violating the law, and there's nothing being done about it. They're not being held accountable. There's actually injustice in the courtroom. I experienced this with a friend of mine a few years ago who I went to college with. He felt the Lord leading him to be a church planner, and so he went to plant a Baptist church in Salt Lake City, Utah. You can imagine how that went over. True story. He's on his way to church on Sunday morning. A gentleman runs a stop sign and plows into the side of his car. Because of this accident and insurance and so forth, they end up in front of a judge in the civil courtroom for this matter to be settled and when the judge found out that he was a Baptist preacher, he ruled for the man that had plowed into him going down the street. You said, that's not right, pastor. That's, that's not fair. Amen. I agree with you. But why in the world would we go in front of someone who's not a believer and expect that they are going to do the right thing? Two things concerning justice. Number one, God's justice. Do you really believe that he's the only one that determines what's right and what's wrong? Y'all with me? A.W. Tozer said, justice is not something that God does, it's who he is. He is right in all things. He is right in all matters. He determines what's right and what's wrong. The culture does not determine, the court system does not determine, the educational system does not determine, and even pastors and seminarians do not determine. God Almighty determines what is right and what is wrong because God is just. You have to believe this in your theology that God does all things right. He does all things well. He never makes mistakes. He never does wrong because he is just. And then you have man's justice, which I don't know about you, but it, I know that studying history and even studying the Roman Empire, but maybe today because of social media and television and other things, it sure seems like that we have completely lost our mind in our country over what is right and what is wrong. Man's justice. Occasionally, I hear Christians say things like this. Well, you know, we, we, should, we should not want to force God's guidelines and God's laws on the culture or on our country. Let me ask you a question about that. If somebody steals your car out of your driveway tonight, do you want the civil law enforcement to act upon God's law that thou shalt not steal? I would guess you probably do. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? I'm saying that 
if it weren't for our Creator, God Almighty, if it weren't for His Word, if it weren't for the, the foundation of how we interact with one another and how we treat one another, if it were not for the Ten Commandments, we would not know what a civil society looks like. It would just be a free-for-all. And what we have today is we have a picking and a choosing based off of feelings and education and ideologies and so many other things about what is right and what is wrong. Oswald Chambers said, never look for justice in this world, but never cease to give it. Don't look for justice in this world. Don't look to a lost world for justice. Don't ask the world to define what justice is for you, Christian. At the same time, as a Christian, as we operate in the parameters of the Word, we should desire, even in our relationships with one another, that things be right. There's something inside of me that says, I don't want to do David Williams wrong. I'd rather die than do him wrong. If I've done something, I need to make it right. Paul is saying here in the church, what in the world is wrong with you? How dare, shame on you. You're, you're, you're suing each other. You need to settle these matters among yourself and not in the civil court. So if you have something that happens that rises to a, a serious issue like a lawsuit or litigation, how can we settle the dispute? I think Paul gives it very clearly here in the text. First of all, he says, do your best to settle it among yourself. Matthew chapter 18 is, again, under that banner of church discipline. When you have an offense or there's something going on, it says that you go to that person and you sit down with them and you have a conversation and you work it out and you try to settle it. Settle it among yourselves. Don't, don't send it out in an email as a prayer request. Sit down and look them in the eye and say, brother, look, sister, you this there's an offense here. You've wronged me and I want to... I want to get this right. I want you to make it right. And if you're a Christian and you've done wrong and you have no desire to make it right, I would question my salvation. Christians want to be right. Amen? You, you, you want to be right before God, and you want to be right with one another. So settle it. Settle it. It's better to settle our disagreements personally and privately than publicly and overtly. Can I back up just a minute and tell you that the two little illustrations that I gave you at the beginning of my sermon, those were not fictitious, made-up stories. Those were real stories that I have seen and experienced of how things get done in the church that are wrong. How are we going to handle it? Settle it. Do the right thing. If you can't settle it, number two, let the Christian family let people in the church, Paul says, is there not someone among you that is spiritual enough or has enough discernment where they can sit down as an arbitrator and help you settle this matter? There shouldn't be an unbeliever, an unrighteous person in the arbitration position. It should be a brother or sister in Christ that has both parties' best interests in mind. I'm learning more and more in my life and my ministry the value of wisdom and discernment because we all face things at times and we go, God, what do I do? What do I do? Can you imagine what it was like for Solomon 
in 1 Kings chapter 3 when two women come to him one day and they're arguing over this baby. Who does this baby belong to? So they're arguing back and forth. That's my baby. No, that's my baby. And Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, had a lot of discernment, which, you know, is really questionable when you have 700 wives and 300 concubines. But the Bible says he was full of wisdom and discernment. And Solomon said, give me the baby. I'm going to take a sword. and I'm going to cut the baby in half, and each of you will have 50%. And in that moment, the real mother backed up and said, no, no, I don't want that done to my baby. She can have the baby. And Solomon knew in that moment that the real mom had spoken up. A man of wisdom, a man of discernment. You know, when you have a Christian arbitrator that's trying to help you settle a dispute, you're prayerful that they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they have discernment that they can listen to the voice of God, the Spirit of God, apply the Word of God in order to make the right decision. So settle it among yourselves or, or let someone in the Christian family sit down and, and be the arbitrator and settle the dispute. Or the third thing is, which is really maybe the hardest thing, you get to a point where you just say, I'm just going to let the Lord handle this. The man that was owed $1,000 came to me years ago, and he said, you know what, Tim? I'm forgetting all about that. I'm going to give it to the Lord, and I'm going to let the Lord take care of that. I'm not going to allow that to deprive me of sleep at night. When you get in disputes like this, you know what it robs you of? It robs you of your joy. It robs you of your peace. And again, we're not saying that you're approving or okaying someone that's done wrong. It's not, that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying you have, to, you have to determine, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Let the Lord handle it. Let the Lord deal with that person that's done you wrong. Why? Because we're held to a higher standard. And he says in the last verse, in verse number eight, I remind you that you yourself, you do people wrong. The word wrong there means you injure people, you harm people. And in this case, he even includes some of you beat other people out of money. Maybe it's a, a business that someone is running and they're overcharging for certain things or they're getting wealthy off church members. He says, you yourself, you're wanting to sue somebody. You, you defraud people. You don't always treat your brothers and sisters the way they should be treated. So let the Lord handle it. Let the Lord handle it. I love what Tom Wright said. Look, look here on the screen. He said, those who name the name of Jesus and claim to follow him have an astonishing destiny in the future. Can we just pause there for just a minute? Heaven is our home. It's astonishing. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It has not entered into the heart of man what it's going to be like when we get there. And this life is just like one grain of sand out on the beach. It's like one tick of the clock for one second. Our life, James says, is like a vapor on the stove 
with a boiling pot of water. That vapor comes and it goes. It appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. In light of eternity, that's what your life and my life is like. We have an astonishing destiny. Eternity with Christ in heaven. But because of that, because you have that, Christian, it results in an astonishing responsibility in the present. We have to live as Christians, as children of God. And if we're going to do that, if we want justice, if you want justice, you don't go to the unjust to settle a matter of dispute. You come to the Lord and his church, to Christian brothers and sisters, and settle it in a way that would please the Lord. Many of you are sitting here right now and you're going, thank God I'm not in a mess like that right now. It's really good to preach about stuff like this when it ain't going on. But now we know what God has said in his word about this. Now, now what's the hinge of all this? What's the, the key to understanding all this? I'm glad you asked. I want you to look in verse number nine and I'm going to finish up. There's just two statements here. If you want justice, don't go to the unjust. But if you want perspective, Remember who you were. Remember who you were. Look at verse number nine, one of the verses or passages in the Bible that gets misunderstood, I believe misinterpreted, as Paul follows this up to make the point that the unrighteous, the unbeliever that he's just talked about in verse six, and the unrighteous in verse number one, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's very important to focus on that word unrighteous and remember that it means those that are unjust, those who are unbelievers, because sometimes Christians come to this passage and they want to interpret it as anyone who commits any of these sins they will not go to heaven. So example, we're going to get down to drunkard here in a minute. If you're drunk and you die in a car crash, the Bible says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so there's this fear of losing your salvation, of forfeiting your right as a child of God. Remember, this word means unjust. It means you've not been justified. Keep that in mind, and we'll see it again in verse number 11. Now, what he begins to list here is that as Christians, we cannot live a life of deception and to think that as children of God, we can live like the world. As we get on into 1 Corinthians, he's going to say, you know, come out from among them and be you separate. Be separate from the world. We're not to blend into the world. In Titus, it says that you and I as Christians, are we're called apart to be peculiar people. How many of you met some peculiar Christians before? They were just weird, right? That's not the word there. It means that we're set apart. We're set apart to Christ. We're supposed to live differently than the world. Don't be deceived. Look, neither the sexually immoral. That word there is pornos, pornography, pornographic world. Christians know that you just cannot live any way you want to live. It doesn't matter how sexually immoral the world is or what the world okays or validates. God's Word says the unsaved live this way. 
nor idolater. Christians know that we worship Christ and Christ alone, and idolatry creeps in our life when we love and we have our attention and affection on anything more than Christ. One of the teachers told me this week that one of the little boys in Vacation Bible School, they were talking about idolatry, and he said, he said, idolatry? He thought the teacher was saying idolatry. Like, what does that mean? I thought that was funny. A couple of you did. Nor adulterers. I was on the phone yesterday with a pastor for probably 30 minutes. He called to ask me just some advice on how to handle a particular situation where a man and a woman in the church and both of them had stepped outside of their marriage on each other. The collateral damage from that, the excuses that are offered as to why this happened. Sometimes as pastors, we feel like we need to put on a referee shirt, right? And he's trying to process through them and get them focused, first of all, on repentance of their sin. You need to repent of what you've done. God will forgive you. I quoted 1 John 1, 9 just a minute ago. Christians know that we're to live holy lives set apart to God, and we know that in a marriage union, we cannot step outside of that and commit adultery. Paul goes on a step further, not only adulterers, but he says men who practice homosexuality. There's only two places in the New Testament where he mentions this, here and in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 10. The word here is men who are effeminate, who are soft. The actual word there is the word sodomite, who has a relationship with another man. God's Word says that marriage is between a man and a woman. And some people say, well, I don't like that. I don't like that. You're just being judgmental. No, I'm not. I have nothing to say about marriage. I have nothing to say about it except what God has said about it. That's it. So I'm not going to sit up here and say, well, you know, in some cases, adultery is okay. In some cases, homosexuality is okay. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say that those who are unrighteous, who will not inherit the kingdom of God, say, it's my right to live this way. I can live any way I want to live, which means you are disdaining authority. You're disdaining God's authority and the authority of the Word of God. He goes on to say thieves. The word there is klepto. You ever called somebody a kleptomaniac? Well, you know where that word comes from? It's the Greek word klepto, which means stealing. And in this case, it's, it's someone that's, uh, you know, just kind of sneaky, if you will. On down, we see the word swindlers, and that word means robbers, or you, you steal from somebody by force. But a thief is someone that just has deception and sticky fingers. A Christian shouldn't live that way. Those that are greedy, we saw that word last week or the week before. Greedy means that you fill up yourself. It's all about you. You get all you can, can all you get, and then sit on the can, right? It's all about you. You fill yourself up. What am I going to get out of this? Drunkards, the abuse of alcohol, living in drunkenness. There's that word revilers that we saw in the life of Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile back. Paul says Christians are not revilers. They're not abusive. They don't treat others with disrespect. There's that word swindlers there. 
robbers stealing by force. Now notice the next phrase in the next verse. This is so important. And such were some of you. Were. Will you say that word with me? Say it again. And such were some of you. When you become a Christian, all things become new. The lifestyle that you live, you might have stolen and cheated, and you might have just been an angry, violent kind of person. You might have been an adulterer, a philanderer, and everybody knew it. You might be living in a homosexual relationship. You, you might be a greedy person. But this is who you were, not who you are. It doesn't mean that you are not capable as a Christian of committing any of those sins. We are all capable of anything. John clarifies it just a little bit more as he's writing in 1 John chapter 5. He says, whoever is born of God does not commit sin. And the language there is not that you will never sin, that you will never fail. It means that you will not live in a habitual pattern of sin without conviction and without repentance. You can't do it. You might call yourself a Christian, or you might try to bear the name Christian, but that's not how a Christian lived. So were some of you. What happened to you? What happened to me if you're a Christian? Well, here's what happened. You were washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And isn't it great to be forgiven? Just to be forgiven. You're washed. You're cleansed. And there's nothing like it in all the world. You are sanctified. That word means you're made, you're made holy. You're not holy. God is holy. You're not holy. Jesus is holy. You were sanctified, made holy. You were justified. You see, you had this big old bill. Imagine if it were a, a credit card or the mortgage on your house. You've got this big old bill that you've rung up. And there's no way that you could ever pay that bill. You've got yourself so deep in the ledger. That ledger will never be cleaned. Justification is that Christ came and put on your account his righteousness. So think about it. In verse 1, unrighteous, unjust. As a Christian, you're not unrighteous because you've been justified. You're just. How did that happen? It happened in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Let me close. The natural man doesn't understand this list of sins. Doesn't understand it. They don't understand the call to more, a moral, holy life. Doesn't make sense. Because we live in a hedonistic world. It's all about self-gratification. It's all about your feelings. It's all about 
expressive individualism. This is what I want. This is who I am. This is what I deserve. But when you're a Christian, you place yourself under the authority of Christ and the authority of the Word because you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is at work in you and through you. Hear me for just a minute. One of the reasons why I would say that we do not believe in a second work of grace where you get saved and then you get the Holy Spirit is because in the meantime, how do you deal with your own sin if you don't have the Holy Spirit? How do you have the, how do you have the power to overcome if you don't have the Holy Spirit? Y'all tracking with me? It's the Spirit of God that shows you I'm a sinner and I need a Savior that brings you to that point of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And you know that you're set apart. You're in the family. You're in the body. And you're called to have pure relationships with one another. Maybe you're here today and you don't have anything that has risen nearly to the case of going and getting a lawyer and filing a lawsuit. Praise God for that. Amen. But maybe you've got some things in your life that you need to get right with someone else. God is saying, live pure, have pure relationships with one another. And I just remind you as I close, if you want justice, don't go to the unjust. If you want perspective, remember who you were before Christ saved you. I close with 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're a Christian today, that's you. Let's live in light of our salvation. Amen. Would you stand with me?